Hello, everyone. Lucid Dreaming and Shadow Work teacher Charlie Morley is the guest on the podcast today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a while now because I've been aware that for the past year or so, Charlie has been applying what he does to working with veterans suffering of post-traumatic stress disorder. As I'm sure you'll be aware, it's a condition that often manifests itself in disturbed sleep and suffering with night terrors. And I start off by asking Charlie what it was in his experience that took him into this work. When I was 17, I had really, really bad nightmares from this like big drugs overdose thing I had. So actually it was me curing my nightmares through lucid dreaming that was the first time I realized the kind of potential of lucid dreaming. So actually from the genesis of my journey into lucid dreaming, I've had this connection to nightmares and all, not just connected to nightmares, but I know that it works, that this can stop them. Cause I had like four months of terrible nightmares, managed to get lucid. Well, I took three attempts, but in the third attempt, managed to get lucid, stay in the nightmare, f literally face my fears and the nightmares went away, never came back. So there has always been that, but um, it was kind of a chance meeting. A veteran called Keith McKenzie came on one of the lucid dreaming retreats that I was running at Holy Isle about six or seven years ago now. And he came on the retreats. He had bad nightmares, not only actually from his time in the army, uh, from his time in the paratroopers, but from his time as a firefighter. Um, very interesting point he made. He said, actually, what I saw in the army, what I saw in the, in the uh, uh, paras was over like a short amount of time. And what you saw, yes, w was, was terrible and traumatic, but it was a short amount of time. He said, I then had 20 years as a firefighter seeing charred bodies, dead bodies on a weekly basis. Mm. And he really opened me up to that, that actually he said the PTSD I got as a firefighter was way worse than as a paratrooper, way worse because it was so sustained and it was so continuous. So anyway, he came to a lucid dreaming retreat. Um, by the end of the four days, he said that his nightmares had gone. They, they just never came back or never came back with the same ferocity because of the practices he'd done. Uh, not only the lucid dreaming, but the mindfulness of dream and sleep, which is this holistic approach I've developed to kind of sleep uh, health, if you like. Um, then we kind of went our separate ways. And about two or three years later, he emails me again and tells me he's done the training to be a, a qualified mindfulness teacher and has started running retreats, especially for veterans. So a veteran mindfulness teacher teaching other veterans. Do I want to come and do some of the lucid dreaming stuff? And I was, yeah, of course I wanted to go, but I had no idea whether it would work. It's like, Keith, look, I don't know whether you're one off. I have no idea. I've never... I've, I've never met any veterans before apart from you. I don't know. And he said, well, come along and let's see. So he went along kind of experimentally and tried some stuff just for like a day. So it's like a five day retreat. I went in for one day. And, um, after the first night we realized this, this thing had legs. Like two of the guys came down after the first night, one of them in the dream circle afterwards, like crying as he told the rest of the group that he slept through the night. Now I didn't know his history. So while, he was kind of welling up and being supported by the group. I didn't really understand. I went, Oh, well, do you, do you struggle to sleep through the night? And he went, I haven't slept through the night for seven years. Wow. Last night was the first time I slept through the night. And he was going, no terrors, no horrors. I did it. I did. It. I slept through the night. And I was like, fuck. Wow. And I got this feeling that I wanted to feel again, which is that I had genuinely helped someone and I had seen it. Um, cause some of the lucid dreaming stuff, because it takes a few weeks for people to kind of stabilize lucid dreaming. I'm often not there when they have their breakthroughs, but this was quite a rare occasion to be there the morning after this guy had had this big breakthrough. Um, and then a couple of other guys on that same retreat had, had, uh, some pretty, pretty strong breakthroughs. Then we did it again the next year. I did a slightly longer thing, a couple of days. Um, and there one guy, his nightmares just stopped. Uh, 
Um, and I know that they have continued to stop because, you know, on Facebook, they do that thing, the memories like this one year ago, yeah. you were here. So it had his thing came up on his thing. One year ago, you were on the veterans retreat with Keith McKenzie and Charlie Morley. He reposted that photo and said one year later, still no nightmares. Um, and again, I got this feeling of like, fuck, this, this is really helping people and I need to do more of it. Um, so then I did do more of it and we did, uh, uh, Keith invited me on some more veterans retreats. Um, and then I applied for this scholarship, this Winston Churchill fellowship, um, that gave, that basically funded me to go around America for a month studying best practice in mindfulness based PTSD treatment. Um, cause they're like light years ahead in, in the U S on, on oh, really? services simply cause their armed forces are so huge. So, so much bigger than ours. Um, of course they still have the same problems with vets accessing services and the stigma of PTSD stopping them going to access them. Um, but they're, they're, they're kind of, there's a much broader scope of help there. So I was studying with all these different psychologists and psychiatrists and stuff and kind of researching, seeing what works and what doesn't. Then I have to put it together in this presentation for the Churchill trust, uh, which hopefully maybe might get into the hands of some of the lawmakers and, and make a difference. Maybe not. Okay. So my next question is a really obvious one. Like what on earth are you doing? that was affecting night terrors in one night. I mean, because I would think of lucid dreaming as something that you do have to put quite a bit of effort into over quite a bit of time to even yeah. get going. So, so and that's dramatic. What, what, are you, what are you doing with people? That's So those two guys who on that first retreat, the one who slept through the night and the other one who had no night terrors on the first night. Yeah, those two. On that first day, we hadn't even touched lucid dreaming. We'd just been doing the mindfulness of dream and sleep approach, which is basically, it, it's kind of a three-pronged approach, but the, the important thing is it's like knowledge is power. Uh, we spend a third of our lives in a state that most of us have no knowledge about. We do not know about sleep. People don't know about the sleep stage. They don't know about uh, how many wake-ups in a night is normal for a healthy sleep cycle. They don't know the difference between sporadic insomnia and terminal insomnia. You know, all this kind of stuff we don't know. All we know when we leave school in this country anyway, is a kind of a, um, the myth of the eight hour sleep cycle. That if you're not getting eight hours solid, um, there's something wrong with you. I've even heard people say crazy stuff. Like if you remember your dreams, you haven't slept well, you should be just totally blanked out. You know, so much misinformation. So on that first day, all those veterans had from me, of course they had all the mindfulness from Keith in the day. So maybe it was that, who knows? But all they had from me was uh, how we sleep. So we spent a lot of time going through the sleep cycles and discussing how in each stage of sleep from the hypnagogic right through to hypnopompic at the other stage, uh, stress and trauma can affect those cycles, uh, how that stress and trauma may affect them and the reason for it, the reasoning that the body's trying to help you, you know, the, uh, like a nightmare is a helpful thing. In fact, there's one guy, Antti Ravonzo from a um, uh, Finnish university. He believes that nightmares are the reasons that we became top predator on the planet because all mammals dream um, and mammals seem to have nightmares too. I mean, when they've studied kind of dogs and cats too, or having, what is a nightmare, you know, some sort of traumatic dream. Um, and if we could dream about lions and tigers and bears or, you know, running away from a saber tooth tiger, the next day we were less likely to be eaten by one because we had rehearsed it. So actually the, the nightmare serves a purpose. It's a rehearsal mechanism. It's trying to help us, trying to keep us safe. But if the trauma becomes, as intense it is, 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 is it, as it is in PTSD nightmares, um, it gets like stuck on a loop. So this kind of safety mechanism gets broken. It kind of keeps on going around in a circle. But anyway, with these guys, we just looked at the sleep cycle. We looked at some basic relaxation stuff to do before sleep. Uh, we normalized the fact that if you wake up 
anything less than five times a night, that's totally, that's part of a totally normal sleep cycle because we wake every 90 minutes or so, these micro awakenings, and this thing called hypnagogic mindfulness, which is like a form of yoga nidra. So we hadn't even touched the lucid dreaming. Okay, and I think normalizing can be a big thing, right? Or better to say, recasting, reshaping. So rather than yeah. being this awful thing that you're a victim of, it's like, okay, yeah. there's, there's a protective edge to this and we've got to integrate it somehow. I think it was just the first time these guys had had someone who, first of all, let them speak about their sleep and listened, honestly, and then told them why it's happening. And there was even one guy who, um, I talked about the hypnopompic, which is that stage when you come out of sleep being a stage where the clarity of mind is intense, intense clarity of mind. So anything you've been repressing during the day, like heartbreak or, or trauma or whatever it is, often pops up in the hypnopompic. And we often have an extended period of hypnopompic after about four and a half hours of sleep. Now, this is what leads to people to talk about the 4 a.m. demons. When about three or four o'clock in the morning, of course, it depends when you went to sleep, but you know, whatever it is, um, opening your eyes into this intense clarity and whatever you've been trying not to look at during the day, boom, is there. And I explained how that works and why the hypnopompic is a state of clarity. And then the next day, a guy came down and he still, he did have his demons, his 4am demons, but he came and went, ah, oh, it happened just as you said, 4am, it happened, it happened. But he was, there was a joy in his voice that at least he knew why. And he was now fascinated. And of course, fear and fascination cannot exist in the mind stream at the same time. They can't. Right, so okay. if you can move from fascination out of fear into fascination, fear is dissolved. So he did still have the night terrors, but he could be fascinated about the fact that they came in at exactly the time I said they would. So he was kind of, oh, I'm normal. Look, they came in exactly four and a half hours later. I mean, it's crazy what just re reshaping, representing something can do for people. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. You've, you've expressed what I was trying to uh, say there very clearly. Like, in that it changes it from something you want to get away from to something you're curious about and look at. And when you look Absolutely. at it, you start to change. Um, I actually in total relate to what you're saying there. I recovered from a bout of depression that went on for about a year and a half, mm. suddenly abruptly in a moment at 4am when wow. I'd encountered a non-dual teacher who reshaped it for me, reframed yes. what was going on. Yes. Saying, look, this is your essence. The yes. You're just like getting to it and going, oh, it's horrible. I want to get away from it because all this big black nothingness. And in, in then being able to engage with that and look beyond it, it I awoke at, at four, about 4 a.m. in the morning. Yes. And I saw all the people I loved and were a supply of love to me. They're like clear as anything, totally vivid. Like I was dreaming, I was awake, and they all moved away from me. And I was left in this complete aloneness, which then wow. opened up into this transcendent sense of love. And it's that. And I would say since then, ha knowing from then on to embrace that 4 a.m., kind of moment yeah. that's when any if i was to write down all the most interesting things that occurred to me through life they're all 4 a.m yes, exactly you look at the amount of you know uh inventors who've had their their uh big breakthroughs at that time it's the hypnopompic you know it's actually nothing to do with the time it's just because you know maybe most people go to bed at 11 or midnight whatever it's it's to do with about four and a half hours after you've gone to sleep this extended period of, of hypnopompic i love your use there you didn't say lonely you said aloneness you said all my friends and family disappeared and I was left in this black aloneness. Mm. And I thought you would say loneliness. And that's really lovely because I've really struggled with loneliness. That's been a big demon for me. And when I could reframe or when I could see the difference between loneliness, the desire to be with people whom you are not with and aloneness, the experience of being alone, <laughs> everything changed, everything changed. And aloneness can be incredibly powerful. Yeah. 
It's where you find out if you really are in that. Yeah. And yet, if we reject it, it becomes loneliness. Yes. Which I've been doing for so many years. Yeah. Mm. That's brilliant, man. When did you have that breakthrough? Oh, that was um, 2007. So it's over 10 years ago now. Yeah, and it was like with the depression, it was a year and a half, unable to fix it, and then gone. And yeah. I didn't know it was gone. I woke up like the next day, and is it gone? And then I get through a day, and it's not here. It's not been around all day. That's that's yeah. Oh, and then it was actually I went um, to the pub and had a few drinks like two weeks later, and that was a 100% guarantee that you'd have an episode of it, and it didn't mm. happen. Like, I'm clear. It's not. Wow. Yeah, it was, and it, it caused that 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 experience of that infinite love that came in. It's like the veil fell away. Yeah, that, that experience of this, um, the, the conscious mind of the universe creeping through the real advice of Vedanta type experience. Yeah. Um, that just shifted because it, it answered my question perfectly. My, my question, my angst was, well, are we really loved? Right. Cause all the love yeah. I know is, is transient. It comes for the people, they come yeah. and go and they, don't, they yeah. may all be gone one day. So without that, I don't feel like, I don't feel this mystical thing about God is love and God is a thing. I just feel kind of mm. emptiness. So what, what is real? What is real? Mm. And ooh, I'm not sure it is all real. Maybe it's all, maybe it's like Sigmund Freud says that the love of God is something that lonely people make up to, you know, people that aren't good at making friends make up to comfort themselves. Ooh, I don't like that, but it's kind of my experience. And then be, when I found the resolve and the willingness and the surety to engage a bit fully, that's when it, that's when it transformed. Then it, the, mm. the veil of the universe fell away. Like, if you like, that's what it felt like. And it revealed what was underneath. And, mm. you know, I could probably sit and intellectually, deconstruct that and go, well, yeah, maybe it was brain chemicals, but there's a felt sense of security that's found in that, that transcends intellectual questions about what it, was it this, was it that, and the, mm. the, that manifests. And yeah, depression doesn't come back. It's, it's gone mm. then. Mm. Brilliant. Thanks, man. I just realized I nodded when you quoted Freud there. And I didn't want to nod. I think Freud's chatting shit. But well, yeah, he is, but it, but I nodded in just that place. Like I'm being recorded here and they're like, sure. Freud <laughs> thought that, God was made up by lonely people. Um, yeah, I don't agree with that. No, no, I don't. But it, it, in that place, <laughs> it, became, it became a compelling thought. You know, it became like, oh, I can see why he said it. You know. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, no, I don't. My agree God, with that. yeah, me too. When I was in the depth mm. of my loneliness, my God, it makes you question everything. But I know it's not real now. But when you're in it, fuck. It's interesting you talk about depression. I had my first experience of kind of proper depression this year, actually right at the beginning of the year. And um, I just thought it was so many different things. I thought it was because I'd left the Buddhist center. I thought it was because I had moved into a flat and that was stressful. I thought it was because um, uh, I'd gone vegan. It was a dietary thing and it was lack of minerals and stuff. Then right at the end of my list, I thought, oh, and my mom's got Alzheimer's, but I'm fine with that. And then this last year, about kind of two or three months, I was having no lucid dreams. I wasn't even having any real clarity of any dreams let alone lucid dreams i just i would sleep long enough and not feel any energy just feel tired all day you know now i see these are classic depression symptoms but i couldn't admit that i was depressed because i had this thing about you know i'm a buddhist i'm a lucid dreaming teacher i do workshops about death all this stuff so then my mum dying isn't something i'm allowed to be depressed about and i was actually tim freak who, when I opened up to him, he went, Charlie, your mum dying. You said, you know, said, depression is a totally normal response to your mother dying. And when he said it, and then I could say out loud, like, yeah, I'm really depressed by that and release it. Within a couple of weeks, it went and the energy came back. And just like you were kind of noticed that it had gone, 
but that experience of depression was so thick, you know, it was like this thick kind of blanket that just, that coated everything I did. And it was really a beautiful moment, very good for my empathy, because I feel now I can understand something of when people talk of depression, you know, I mean, a couple of months, that's nothing, but at least I can, I can appreciate something of it. So now I'm always very, very interested when I hear people about when they've moved through depression, because God, I can just appreciate how heavy that blanket is that just boom is laying over everything, regardless of circumstance. Yeah. Um, and I also, I echo what you say about it. I do some death and bereavement stuff and I, I take Tim Freak's book on it as a bit of a foundation actually. And what I find there's so much great stuff on death and bereavement with the near death experience research. Mm -hmm. But what I really like about Tim's work is it never gets away from that sense of the awfulness of yeah. death too. It's not like you do the spiritual stuff and the awfulness goes away. It's like they, the, the more awareness you bring to it, I find they kind of increase together. Okay. So, um, we had a situation just recently where it looked like my eldest dog might be coming to the end. Right. And she's pulled through, but of course it will come. She's 11. So it, it will come, but facing it, it, the loss of this individuality and the uncertainty of the well, what is it that anything that transcends death? It, it, will it be the same dog? Will it be some mm. sort of energy of a dog that's similar, but not that I won't recognize and, and, and facing the loss, right? There was this overwhelming sense of awfulness. It was the most intense awfulness of mm. just the, the recognition of that loss and the uncertainty around it. And at the same time, um, there's a movement through to a transcendence and a sense of security too. It's like they both, I think most people don't find death, death troubling because they're just not thinking about it, right? It's not that they've transcended. It is yeah. something that should stop, shock you. And we're so repressed in our, in our views of death and death anxiety is so all encompassing that actually it's, yeah, I think you're right. It's that we haven't thought about it enough. It's something that I found, I mentioned just before we were recording, I've just, um, putting it, putting public this research I've been doing on spirituality for, for body image. Okay. Yes. And you scratch the surface with body image and a lot of death stuff comes up. Okay. Cause a lot of stuff around aging. It's like, Oh, I don't look as beautiful as I used to when I was younger. Well, when you really go into that, what's the major concern? The major concern is this is indicative that the body is slowly falling away and I'm going to that big black hole and I don't know what that is. And I'm going to lose yeah. everything and all my loved ones and it's all going to be gone. And that's where I hate the sight of my face getting older. It's, it's, it's underpinning it. Yeah, that's lovely. So, so getting back to your veterans, yeah, um, I'd like to ask you about that. How did you find they engaged um, beyond that point? And did they engage with the kind of shadow work you've been doing? Because your work opens up so much possibility for people to, to run with their work. So when I was working with the veterans, like we do do it at a retreat center right by Samaling. It's literally like, you know, fifth, like a hundred meters away from Samaling Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland. But we present the whole thing in a completely non-sectarian way. So without any of the Buddhisty stuff. So I'm not kind of mentioning the dream yoga stuff. Uh, and I'm not mentioning the shadow stuff. No, because the, the things that these men and women have been through can make some of the shadow stuff seem like reasonably kind of low level. So no, I don't, don't really mention it. And yet, of course, what we're doing is the most intense form of shadow work there is, Right. you know, facing incredible trauma, but I don't use those terms. I don't use the, the shadow work terms. I don't use the Buddhist terms, but what we have found is, um, 
we probably could do more because like at the end of the last retreat with the vets, um, they were all going to have interviews with Lama Yeshe and offering him Tibetan cathars and buying Buddha statues in the shop and stuff like that. Um, and at the end, I offer them one of my books if they'd like them. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of them read it. And then it turns out they buy the shadow book and stuff like that. So, yes, I just think I'm, because I've only worked with, it's only been like for the last two years, and I've only worked with three or maybe four veterans groups, so a very small sample group so far, you know, like for under 50 veterans I've worked with probably. Yeah, under 50. Um, I'm still tiptoeing very, very carefully about how much I share. But, you know, they know they can watch all the videos they like on YouTube of me and stuff like that. And if they dig my work, they can. Uh, but when I'm presenting it to them, you have to be so, so delicate. I mean, just the fact that I'm presenting to them and I'm not a veteran is already questionable. Because... If you look at the results that you get when it's peer to peer with veterans, they're way higher than oh, therapists really? trying to work with veterans, way higher. But I think I kind of managed to come in this, this kind of gap where I'm the good friend of a veteran who happens to be the guy running the retreat, Keith. So they've already been there for a few days. So by the time I get there, I'm aware that Keith's probably, you know, set them up for me. He's probably said kind things about me and, you know, made jokes that, yeah, he is a civilian, but kind of thing. Um, so I think I can go in and, and do work there that maybe other civilian therapists, well, not that I'm a therapist, but the civilian therapist can't do. Um, but I'm still very aware of what to, what to share and what not to share. Um, just because it's such delicate minds we're working with when, when people have PTSD. So it's, um, yeah, I just want to be really gentle. Okay. So I, I'm, one of the things I've always appreciated about the way you describe your work is you shift between two worlds very fluidly between the sort of Western science world talking about laying down neural pathways, and then you can shift into this more Tibetan view and give a more esoteric explanation of the world as consciousness. And, and that's why lucid dreaming is having its effect. And, um, and th th those two views maybe are reconcilable in some ways. Maybe they sit in, in opposition to each yeah, other. Both. With the whole thing of nightmares, um, you've described it as a kind of evolutionary response, potentially. Mm. Um, but what would be the, the spiritual kind of take? Is there a Tibetan take on why we have yeah. nightmares? Um, not so much why we have them. I mean, it would be all, there are kind of three main categories of dreams within Tibetan Buddhism. Samsaric dreams, clarity dreams, and clear life experiences. Clarity dreams contain within them lucid dreams. Um, uh, lucid dreams oh kind of a dharma dreams where you receive teachings and stuff like that and clear life experiences and experience of non-duality and sleep and then samsaric dreams which is what i want to get what my point is about samsaric dreams are your everyday normal non-lucid dreams uh, about this life and from a buddhist point of view your past life too actually strangely within the samsaric dream category um prophetic dreams are within that which is interesting you think that prophetic dreams would be in the clarity dream bit right but from a tibetan point of view Prophetic dreams are pretty like, uh, ah, fuck, I fucked up. No, in clarity dreams, prophetic dreams sit. Sorry, in the samsaric dreams, there are past life dreams. Now that's what's interesting because in the West, we have this big thing about having past life dreams, mm -hmm. right? Whereas in the Tibetan tradition, the samsaric dreams contain within them past life dreams because we're having so many past life dreams, it's not a big deal but how do we reference them and how do we know what was a dream from this life and that life? And there are some techniques and stuff like that, but you're basically supposed to ignore them because unless you were enlightened in your past life, 
having dreams about your past life ain't really a big deal. So within the samsaric dreams, you have normal non-lucid dreams, you have past life dreams, and you have nightmares that will be coming up. Um, nightmares could be because of this life trauma, they could be a past life trauma. The main thing we're supposed to do with nightmares, and again, they're seen as this good thing, is that they're really good for lucid dream training. Now, if you look at the science on that, they're really good for lucid dream training. Because like over 30% of spontaneous lucid dreams begin as nightmares because of the function of fear. Like, Whoa! when we're scared, our senses become heightened, our eyes are, are wider, we're, we're ready to deal with stuff, right? It is literally a boost of awareness. If you give someone a boost of awareness while they're dreaming, they have a lucid dream. So nightmares are really good for getting lucid. And of course, if you're lucid in a nightmare, it's really good because you've got loads of juicy psychological stuff to work with. From a Western point of view, we'd call it shadow content, integration of trauma. From a Buddhist point of view, they'd say, this is your fear manifest. These are your demons. And of course, demon in, in Tibetan Buddhism doesn't mean a little monster. The definition of demon, and this is lovely, is anything that prevents your experience of freedom. That's what a demon is. So the demon of an addiction, the demon of self-doubt, the demon of dualism. I mean, that's the biggest demon we all suffer from, right? Thinking we're separate from each other. So I said that nightmares can be a great place to become lucid and to integrate our demons, to transform our demons. So pretty much the same view as the Jungian shadow works up, which is that nightmares are, are a good sign because they give you uh, a face-to-face -face contact with your shadow and you can then interact with it and, and embrace it and transform it. Um, in fact, Lama Yeshe, when he came to speak to the veterans at the last retreat in March at Samalin, he spoke about his PTSD nightmares. Now, of course, he didn't say that, but I've never heard him speak about that. He said when they were escaping from Tibet, you know, they left with a group of about 200. And like years later, when they arrived, there were 13 of them. That's like 90% of their group died. Like most of them shot and killed. A lot of them died from starvation. Like he saw like 90% of his group die. So when, he, when they landed in India, he would have really bad nightmares. Um, and he spoke about his nightmares to the veteran. I've never heard him speak about that before. And he spoke about how when he, a bit like you with your depression, when you knew it had been integrated, he knew that his nightmares had been integrated through his practice. When he was having this, it would always be a recurring nightmare about, um, what's his name, Mao Zedong, right? The, the mm -hmm. communist leader yeah. at that time. Um, about Mao Zedong and, and the uh, soldiers firing him and stuff like that. And then he finally had a dream where in the dream, Matt, he was running a shop, a grocery shop, and Mao Zedong was his assistant stacking shelves. And then he woke up and he said, I knew with that symbolism that I had integrated that, that demon. So yeah, the nightmare, the integration of trauma, all that stuff, it still exists within Tibetan Buddhism. It's just a different way of looking at it. But generally the same thing about nightmares are not a bad sign. They don't mean you're broken. They don't mean you're unspiritual. You find that in the Western and the, and the uh, Tibetan Buddhist views. Okay. If I was to just give you permission here, Charlie, to be a bit creative in terms of painting a picture of if lucid dreaming practices, shadow work practices, the wisdom of Tibet was more integrated into psychotherapy over the next 10, 20 years, what do you think that could lead to okay i'm not asking you to be exact or make very erudite solid statements based on research i'm asking I'm, I'm saying you know if everyone acknowledges you you're being a bit creative here um what what are your thoughts on on the kind of things that could be approached i mean could we see it being integrated into all areas could it be that people suffering with say anorexia are finding self-discovery and lucid dreaming that's that's helping them with that or um, people with OCD or or any of the other spectrum of mm -hmm. 
human mental suffering that we have. Do you ponder that at all? Do you, do you see potential applications? Yes. And in fact, I'm uh, next year. So September 2019, I'm launching. I know it's the first in this country. I don't know if it's the first in, I'm sure it's not the first in the world, but it's the first in this country. Um, CPD training in lucid dreaming for therapists, for psychotherapists, hypnotherapists, mindfulness teachers, and even school teachers I'm opening up for actually. And there'll be like 50 hours of CPD training um, for people not to learn how to become lucid dreaming teachers, but people who are already psychotherapists who want to learn the modalities of how they can uh, use lucid dreaming to aid their clients, not to teach their clients lucid dreaming, but simply because there are so many psychotherapists coming to me saying clients are presenting with lucid dreams. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know the kind of the, the rules of the game as it were. So I don't know how to advise them. So it'll be kind of like training in a client presents with nightmares. What can we say? All the latest treatment on nightmares, because most people, if, if someone trained like 20 years ago, or even just 10 years ago, the view on nightmares in the psychotherapeutic community was that it was just a sign of trauma and it meant you were still fucked up basically. Now in the last 10 years, it's completely done a 180. And in fact, people with serious trauma, if they are not having nightmares within an allotted time uh, between the traumatic event and then uh, and the present, that's a sign for worry. Because we see that nightmares are such a natural, healthy expression of, of like a wound that is weeping. You know, if you cut your arm, you want your arm to start weeping. You know, the, the, the white blood cells, that shows that it's healing. Um, if it doesn't, then it goes gangrenous, you want to chop your arm off, you know. Um, there is no such thing as a bad, as a bad dream. That's what one um, uh, psychiatrist told me recently. He said that the new thinking is that nightmares are like a dream that is shouting. It is trying to get our attention. Um, so anyway, I'm doing that training next year for uh, psychotherapists who want to bring lucid dreaming into their practice. Um, and yeah, of course I have fantasies that, that one day it will be not that you'll have, I don't think you'll ever have lucid dreaming therapists because the therapist can't be in there with mm -hmm. the client yet. Unless But I think that it can be used as part of, you know, maybe transpersonal psychologists will have lucid dreaming. I mean, I know they do, they have it as a module because my wife's doing a master's in transpersonal psychology, but I mean, actual, the, the actual therapists themselves would, would have the tools to use lucid dreaming uh, in certain cases. Yeah. That would be a, a great thing that I'd love to happen. Um, I was at this thing that has at the, at the house of parliament a couple of weeks ago, it was a presentation about mindfulness in the armed forces in the U S and one of the professors there, a lady from Miami University, whose name escapes me, she made a point that a hundred years ago, if you were seen running down the street, it was because someone was chasing you. Now, if you walk down the street and there aren't people running and jogging, it's a strange street, right? A hundred years ago, if you said, we're going to take the back wheel off a bicycle, put 20 other bicycles next to you facing a wall and you're going to ride it for an hour, they think you were mad. Now we call it a spinning class, right? says not only was the concept of exercise for health seen as a bit mad like a hundred years ago, but we didn't know how vital exercise for health was for our longevity. She said in a hundred years time, we will think the same about mind training. And I was like, yeah, fuck, of course they will. They'll go, do you remember back in the, you know, uh, in the two thousands when they thought that you could be healthy and not do any mind training. <laughs> They thought you didn't, they thought there were crazy people who thought maybe 10 minutes a day was enough. Ha ha ha. They'll laugh at us. They'll be like, no wonder they're all so chronically depressed. No wonder they have such high rates of depression and suicide. Just like when we look back at the 1800s, they no wonder they all died at 40 from liver disease because they were drinking so much alcohol or had such bad diets. It'll be exactly the same. And that kind of turned me on. 
I was like, yes, we're at the forefront here of a, a revolution in the way we look at mind training. Now, why didn't we make the direct link between exercise and health 150 years ago? Because we simply didn't have the research. We didn't know. We were still looking like humors of the body. Uh, you know, neuroscience wasn't even a thing 150, well, 200 years ago. Um, I think it'll be the same in 100 years from now that we will learn so much more about the connection between overall health and mind training, the need to strengthen certain neural pathways to lead to happiness. The fact that happiness is a thing we can train in. We can train to become happier, to become more joyful, to become more resilient. Um, I think in the same way as we have most, you know, a lot of people go to the gym nowadays. I don't know what the percentage is, but you know, a large percentage of people go to the gym once or twice a week or do some exercise, right, to keep healthy hundred years it'll be exactly the same with with mind training um whether it's you know meditation classes or lucid dream classes or something like that um so that excites me the other thing that excites me is resilience this is something tim told me again you know tim is is a font of knowledge he said do you know the difference between strength and resilience and i was like i don't know tell me and he went a, a metal bar is strong right but it has no flexibility it's just there and things bang off it right but a sponge is resilient. You can totally crush it, crush it, crush it. And it'll always you spring back to its natural position. You went, we don't want to have strong minds. They resist. We want to have resilience mind, resilient minds that can get fucking squashed by the unenlightened condition and just samsara and all the things that this world throws at us. But boom, they can spring back again as if it, had, you know, not as if it never happened, but, you know, uh, with the knowledge that had happened, but springing back to our original place. So that really, that kind of turns me on to this, this idea of rather than trying to strengthen our minds, making our minds more resilient. Fantastic. Okay, Charlie, thank you very much for that. I'd like to ask you about something else entirely about this um, boxing experience you had last year, but I'll do that in a separate little video so if you just want to maybe mention now uh, where people can get details of this course you're running next year and even if it's in the future charlie will probably still be running it so so look it up sure and any other work you're doing with the dream and darkness course and, and that kind of thing okay i will do a shameless book plug which i have just here uh, oh, so this is my book about shadow work dreaming through darkness it's my latest book came about came out about a year ago um it's like 20 percent lucid dreaming and 80 percent shadow integration waking state techniques whereas my other books are just about lucid dreaming uh, i've also got online courses like a six hour lucid dreaming course online and a five hour shadow integration course online um the course the cpd training for therapists launching next year those details will be up by the end of the year on my website um, but if you go on and sign up give me your email address and i can send you stuff uh, and there's loads of workshops for next year and workshops for the end of this year too uh, so charliemorley.com is my website you can find me on facebook and instagram oh actually someone said recently if you just put charlie lucid into google then all my stuff comes up apparently so maybe that's easier to, to remember charlie lucid thank you very much john thank you it's been a pleasure